Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tyler Cash. I, I serve as one of the elders of this body of believers that gather under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We are happy you are here. Uh, glad that you are worshiping with us on this Lord's Day. Uh, on your bulletin, there is a uh, QR code that says connect here. I'll remind you at the end of the service, just keep that in mind. Uh, really uh, want to make sure that we connect with those that come, that join us for the first time. Uh, answer any questions you may have about our church, uh, why we do what we do, and what we believe. Um, as a church, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 29. I encourage you to turn there uh, with me this morning as we'll be looking at this text to see what the Lord uh, would have to say to us. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 29. Uh, I'll be preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand. We have some in the back. Our ushers would be happy to grab one of those for you. Or you can make your way back there and feel free to uh, grab one. Um, if you want one on your way out, you can take it. It is our gift to you. So John chapter 6, uh, we're going to read this, or I'm going to read this for us, and then we're going to pray. Uh, as I pray for our time, would you pray for me? John chapter 6, uh, verse 22, would you hear the words of God? It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we are grateful to gather this morning. We're grateful that we have the opportunity to uh, look at your written word revealed to us. And we ask that your spirit would apply this passage to us in the way applicable. Uh, Father, I ask that you would help those that walked in heavy laden, burdened by the weight of their sin to see Christ, to see the salvation available to them faith in him today. Father, we need your help, so we ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, 
Amen. Thanks, Reese. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have planned your dream trip to your favorite destination outside of the USA. You work hard for weeks to figure out the the best time to travel, the the best hotel to stay in, uh, the, the best way to engage this trip. You even spend the extra time and effort to make an itinerary to ensure that you don't miss out on anything you want to do once you reach your dream destination. You strategically pack your bags, ensuring that you pack all the essentials. You've got some adventure clothes, you've got some leisure clothes, and you've got a nice outfit to attend and to to go to the, the best restaurant in the town. I mean, you've got every detail in order. I mean, this is going to be the best trip of your life. After months of hard work and planning, the day comes. It's here. It's time to depart. And you head to the airport early to ensure you have plenty of time to spare. You joyfully walk towards the international flight check-in with your your bags in hand and a smile on your face ready to start your vacation. You patiently wait in line and when your time finally arrives, you gladly step up to the airline representative. I mean, you're ready to just let them know where you are headed because you have worked so hard to get to this point. Then the representative asks a very simple, applicable question in this scenario. May I see your passport? And suddenly the joy and happiness is gone because you remember tragically that you forgot to get a passport. The the one thing that is essential in this situation in order to reach your desired destination was forgotten. All the planning, all the scheduling, all the money spent was in vain because you missed this most important detail. Similarly, in our text today, we see that there's one thing that is essential, that is absolutely necessary if we reach, if we intend to reach our eternal destination with God. There's one thing that we must do, and that is believe in Jesus Christ. That is the essential work that is required to have a relationship with God. We'll see here that people can do a lot of work and still miss the main ingredient that God requires. And as we will see many work to get to Jesus, but it isn't really Jesus that they even want. It's the material blessings, the physical blessings, the things that Jesus can provide. That's what they desire, not really Jesus Christ himself. Now, this section of chapter uh, 6 bears much theological significance. Uh, We see here the first of the seven I am's in Scripture where Uh, Jesus here shows us that he is the bread 
of life in verse 35 where he says, I am the bread of life. Uh, then this is really exactly what this whole section is going to go on to explain. This is a long discourse, a long sermon even, to, to further communicate the, the realities of this profundity that has just been communicated. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And as we kind of journey through this section of Scripture uh, for the next few weeks, and unpack this uh, more, you'll, you'll see that it's oftentimes what's happening is that it's continually communicating the same message in different ways. And the point is, is that Jesus says this is an important truth for us to understand, that he is essential. Now, most people don't like this type of teaching. They don't like the idea that they can't do anything to get right with God. They, they don't like the idea that they have nothing to offer, but as Jonathan Edwards once famously said, they have nothing to offer to God but the sin that made their salvation necessary. It's all we have to offer to our Creator. And in fact, one of the most major theological points in this section of Scripture is that we will see that there are false disciples or followers of Jesus, and there are true disciples of Jesus. Uh, we see this unpacked here. Uh, if you turn or, or look at the last, uh, one of the last verses here in verse 66 of chapter 6, look there with me. Some of you may need to turn there. But in 66, we see what ends up happening after Jesus has just communicated this truth. What does it say? After this, many of his disciples turned back. They no longer walked with him. They, they leave Jesus. They don't like this message that Jesus is communicating. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about everything that has happened in chapter 6 up to this point. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's gone on already. I mean, first we saw the feeding of the thousands, probably ten to 15,000 people. Uh, he feeds these people with uh, five uh, crackers, little pieces of bread, and two sardines, basically. He feeds them. He, he multiplies these elements in, in front of them. He essentially turns... Uh, nothing to something, enough to feed the multitudes. And then we see that Jesus walks on water. And then he, he delivers the disciples to where they need to be immediately, John tells us. And he just removes them from the chaos of the storm by immediately getting them to their desired destination here. And when we pick up in verse 22, we read that we're in the next day that after Jesus has done these great things. And as we look at this section, 22 through 29, I want to give us five headings, five headings to kind of help us to wrap our mind around what's going on. And let me give these for you and then we'll walk through them. Very simple headings. First, we'll see the crowd is on the move crowd is on the move. 
Second, we'll see a diagnosis of this crowd. The diagnosis of the crowd. And then third, we'll see a warning about work. A warning about work. Fourth, a command about work. Command. And then finally here, we'll see the simplicity of the work God requires. So with that framework in mind, let's look at this text. Let's look at verses 22 through 24 first as we see the crowd on the move. It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So it, it's pretty simple here what's going on. And John does this in his writings. He, he gives us a, a lot of detail about the situation that we're uh, embarking upon. And he, he wants to help us to wrap our mind around what is going here. He gives us a place and a setting. A, and it really gives us the people that are involved here. And here we read that a crowd remained where Jesus had just performed the miracles of feeding the thousands with the two fish and five loaves. And, and this group is now on the next day, they're, they're looking for Jesus. Like, where's that miracle worker? Where's that guy that did those great things? But they notice something. Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's not there. Where is Jesus? Now, we don't know if they had left or if they were kind of hiding out. They, they made their way back the next day. But we are told that we, we, and we know that uh, they watched Jesus send the disciples away. He sends the disciples away first, and then Jesus dismisses the crowd. So they apparently observed Jesus sending his disciples off in the one boat. And Jesus is now nowhere to be found. Now, curiosity gets the best of this group after they remember that there was only one boat. And they remember that Jesus didn't get in that boat. And it begs the question here, like, how did Jesus get to the other side? Where is he at? How did he get there? What, what is going on with Jesus here. So they're inquisitive here, and they wish to pursue Jesus to get answers. But while we don't get much detail, we are told that some boats from Tiberias are, are ready to make the journey to help these disciples, these followers, this crowd in this moment to get to Jesus Christ. They're going to go further investigate the situation. So the chase is on. I mean, they're on the journey. They're, they're going to find this miracle worker, the one that had just miraculously satisfied their physical needs, provided for them, filled them up with probably the best fish they had ever tasted. 
I mean, it's heavenly fish, heavenly bread, right? Not tainted by sin. They want more of this, rightly so. Now, this sounds like a noble effort. You know, first read, if we didn't know the rest of the story here, we, we would be tempted to believe that this group was, was super spiritual. They were doing the right things. Like, man, they're going after Jesus. They want to find Jesus Christ. They, they're, they're so just uh, consumed by what Jesus has done that now they've, they're on the pursuit for him. They work hard to make their way to Jesus. But reading further, and upon further investigation, we read that Jesus was not impressed with their efforts because their efforts were motivated not by genuine affections for him, but their efforts were motivated by false thinking. It was self-centeredness here. Jesus provides a pinpoint diagnosis of this crowd's main problem in verses 25 through 26. Uh, Let's look at verse 25 as we really see the diagnosis of this crowd. He says in 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, their efforts pay off. They, they find Jesus. Now they're face-to-face with the miracle worker. They're standing in front of him, and they rightly ask a very simple question. Hey, Jesus, uh, uh, when did you come here? How did you get here? Now, remember, most of these people are going to eventually leave Jesus Christ. They will walk away from Jesus at the end of this chapter. But here, they ask a question. They say, Rabbi, how did this happen? When did you come here? And this implies their surprise at finding him here in Capernaum regarding the circumstances. Uh, If we look at the end of chapter 6 again, it's helpful. Once again, this is one big section broken up into some smaller sections here. But if you look at verse 59, we're told where Jesus is during this discourse. Look there with me. He says, John, the writer, says that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus is likely in the synagogue at this point. This would be a a very common place for someone to be teaching in the way that Jesus is teaching. And they're just simply asking these questions like, how did you get here? When did you get here? We didn't see you leave in a boat. How in the world did this happen? I mean, they're saying, like, we're here to find out more, Jesus. We want to know more about this situation. So tell us. But we quickly see that Jesus is not impressed by their efforts. He's not impressed by their pursuit. Furthermore, he doesn't even answer their question, which would have likely impressed them by Jesus explaining, oh, let me tell you how I got here. I walked on the water. That would have really drawn out that excitement a little bit more. 
it, it would have really motivated this group to continue their pursuit. But instead here, Jesus ignores their question and uses this opportunity to diagnose their self-centeredness in their pursuit of Jesus. And he says in 26, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus's words are strong here. Uh, this is a, a, a truth that needs to be considered. We read the phrase again, truly, truly. Uh, this teaches us that this is something that we need to pause and look at. He emphasizes this fact. He tells them this is something you need to pay attention to. And brothers and sisters, it would behoove us to do so as well. Jesus says you have totally misunderstood the point of the miracle that you witnessed. Like you missed the whole thing. You totally missed the point. You were not pursuing me for me. You were pursuing me because you want more physical provision. You want to see more of the stuff that I do. You want more of what I have to offer. Now, look, I don't know anyone that likes to feel as if they're being used. Apparently, Jesus doesn't either. Remember, Jesus knows everything about each of us. He knows every thought in our head, every desire of our heart. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he says here, your motives are wrong. You're not seeking me because you, you actually understood what the sign they saw represented. Mainly that he is God, that he is the Savior that God has sent. No, they are only after him for superficial reasons. They just want the physical, the material. They want more stuff. In other words, they kept their eyes on what the sign produced materially rather than what it produced spiritually. One 19th century commentator puts it like this. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. That's all they saw. That's all they cared about. They cared about the bread, more stuff, more blessings. Give it to me. I want more of what you have to offer. Make my situation better. Supply my physical needs right now. That is what I want. Now, it's important to note here that it is natural for people to seek to have their earthly needs met. Okay, and there's nothing, uh, the Bible never condemns this practice in its right place. I mean, we should want, we should make sure that we are providing for ourselves, for those around us, I mean, we are told to resist slothfulness, to labor hard, to work. Uh, we're told to make sure that we provide 
for our households. Listen, God filled the earth with good things, right? There's many joys to experience, and God wants us to enjoy the creation for his glory. If you give a kid a toy and all they do about, uh, with it is, is just, there's a balance, right? You want them to give thanks to you, but you also want them to go enjoy that gift. It's a gift to be enjoyed. There's thanks to be given, and we should not ever want the gift over the giver. But there's a balance here, and that's what Jesus is telling us. So the problem here is not simply a desire to take care of their needs. They're not wrong for needing food. We're physical human beings, right? I mean, we need to eat. We, 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 need, to, to, we need shelter. We need water. We need clothing. We need physical things. But Jesus is here telling them that their motivation. Their pursuit for Jesus is all about those things and not him. It's all about them. See, their priorities are messed up. They'd elevated their physical needs over their spiritual needs. They allowed their felt needs to overtake them and motivate them for the wrong reasons. And listen, there's a couple of things, just quick application points, just putting some legs on this passage to help it to sink in for us uh, that I want to point out. One, we see here that a crowd doesn't always equate to right belief. A crowd doesn't always equate right belief. This crowd is wrong. This crowd is off in their thinking. Jesus uh, points this out to them. He diagnoses their problem. I mean, Jesus calls them out. He corrects them here. And brothers and sisters, as we are navigating this world, let us be reminded that it's not always the crowd that has things right. Oftentimes, listen, it's most of the time it's not. The way is narrow and few will find it that leads to eternal life. The path to destruction is what? It's wide. It's very wide. A lot of people are there. Second, we see that a large crowd is not always pleasing to God. I mean, Jesus is not impressed here. He's not just entertained by their gathering. He doesn't celebrate the fact that they found him. He, he's not compromising his position to, to appease them, to satisfy their hard work. He doesn't say, all right, well, hey, you know what? We'll compromise this time because I saw that you worked so hard to get here. It's not what Jesus does. He stands firm on his convictions. He stands firm on the truth that the triune God have held since before the beginning of time, from all eternity. Holy, holy, holy. The God that is above us, that is far wiser, greater, majestic, sovereign. 
that knows everything. Many claim to seek Jesus, but are only seeking their own desires. Many people are, they claim to be on a path with Jesus at the center, but really Jesus is, is maybe on the periphery. It's, it just doesn't happen. He's not the focus. He's not the center of desires. And brothers and sisters, I must ask, are you a part of that crowd? Are, are you a part of the crowd that is, is just kind of adding Jesus in to your life? Is Jesus a, a second-hand thought? Is Jesus something that you're, you're pursuing, a relationship with him? Is it your pursuit of him all in the hopes that he would provide all of your physical wants and needs? And this is evaluation that we need to take constantly. We need to make sure that we're not just pursuing Jesus for the next blessing that he will provide, as we see this crowd did here. We must ask ourselves if our satisfaction with Jesus is just based on the success of our situations. You know, are you, you upset with God when things don't go right? Are you a fair weather follower of Jesus? We must take this serious. See, this was an unfortunate reality for this group, and it is the reality of many today. So many are caught up in cultural Christianity. A, a cultural Christianity that says you can live by the world's definition of success, you can play on the world's field, and you can play by the world's rules, and everything will work out okay in the end. Let me warn you, that is false. That is not the way of Christ. But thankfully, we see the way. We get some instruction here as we see a warning and a command about work. So what should we do? Well, Jesus gives us this. He, he, he lays this out even clearer as we look here at verse 27. First, we see a warning. We see a warning here. He says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. So essentially here we are told that we should not labor exclusively for a materialistic kingdom because guess what? It is perishing. It does not last. Listen, everything in this world is temporary. Everything. I mean, the, the stuff you have, the clothes you love, the house you live in, the car you drive, the phone is probably outdated before we leave service. Like everything you have will become trash one day. Everything. Absolutely everything. And furthermore, even in the hundred years, if it's not trash yet, you, most of us aren't going to be around here to enjoy it anyway, right? Let's be honest. And we, we, we focus so much on these temporal things. We focus so much on materialism. We're consumers. 
We treat the church as a place for consumerism. What does it have to offer me? In reality, when we model the life of Christ, we see that we give ourselves to our brothers and sisters. We serve one another. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, uh, the gospel writer Matthew, he records Jesus' words here and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, where our treasure is, is the natural attraction of our heart, of our desire. And if your treasure is worldly desires, then you will naturally be prone to those things. They will take priority in your life. Brothers and sisters, worldly treasures do not satisfy. They always leave us wanting more. It doesn't matter what it is. I, believe me, uh, some of you don't know my story. Many of you do, but I tried it all. I mean, I tried everything that was out there. And it is fleeting. It is temporary. It's like chasing bubbles. Once you hit one, it's gone. Things of this world are passing by. And Jesus warns us here that when worldly treasures, when the food that perishes is our motivation, then guess what, brothers and sisters? Our work will be in vain. It will be in vain. If that's your motivation, your work will be in vain. Look, I'm a simple guy. I love it when Jesus says, don't do this, do this. <laughs> don't do that, just do this. I, I love just clear instructions in Scripture, and here's what we have where Jesus, by God's grace, does this here. He says, don't work for, for that food that perishes, but, so here we see a command about work in the second part of 27. He says, but, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So what he says here is that there is a different kind of work you should do. Here's what you should do. Here's where we should put our focus. He says there's a different motivation that we should have in this life. There's something more that we should desire. He said there's a way to live your life with an eternal focus rather than a worldly focus. There's something more. We read here that Jesus, the Son of Man, and he uses this term very strategically here. We'll see uh, that later. But he prov will provide the results which ensure that the results are not fleeting. Like we can bank 
on this. This is eternal reward here. These are not temporary results. These things will not be gone tomorrow. They're eternal and they will last forever. Remember the food illustration, right? I mean, the whole point of this whole miracle, this whole discourse, the, what Jesus is teaching them is to help them to remember that he is the bread of life. He is the only one that provides the lasting sustenance needed for eternal reward. He points all of this back to himself. He feeds them with something that they, oh, yep, yeah, we know we need this. Okay, I can feel this. I, I, I'm fed now. It's a physical need. And then he says, guess what? That doesn't last. I do. I am the bread of life, eternal life, not fleeting, not here today, gone tomorrow, eternal. We read that God the Father has confirmed this by setting his seal on him. Look there where it says that. He says, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, this is important here, okay? The, the, the seal language is very significant. It, uh, the, when the Bible talks about a seal, it's a representation of uh, a certification of property or, or ownership of something. It's a seal. Uh, think of a kingdom. A uh, king would have a seal that he would mark off his kingdom with. This is mine. Uh, Paul uses this language in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I believe verse 3 and he, or 13, and he says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When we are saved, when we become believers, guess what? We are sealed, set apart. God says, mine, my people, my kingdom, they are mine. Now, that should comfort us. We're signed, we're sealed, we're set apart. God gives us this reminder that it is nothing that can happen outside of us that will draw us away from that because we are his. And here we see that God the Father has placed this seal. He has given this seal to the Son. The, the triune God has appointed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, to be the one who then is the one that can eternally give this through himself. He is the bread. He is the one that provides the seal, the life that endures. It is him that can complete it. Jesus Christ here has been authorized to bestow this seal of salvation by giving the food that he endures, as we read, to eternal life, mainly himself. It is him. It's the bread of life. See, Jesus is telling this crowd that in order to gain eternal life, they must seek eternal things. Hence, they must seek 
Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about him. But this crowd, which represents humanity very well, is having a hard time to comprehend this great concept. They're like the person that's done all the work. They've done everything that they can. They've worked their way to planning the greatest trip in all of history, the most relaxing time, parents away from their kids, amen. And they're going, and they're going to enjoy this, but they get there, and the passport is nowhere to be found. They've missed it. They've missed the point. Maybe it's they, maybe they're banking on their good deeds. Maybe it was just uh, all about just uh, what God can bless them with. These folks here, they can't comprehend anything other than a works-based salvation where God then rewards them physically for their efforts. God rewards them for their good deeds. They continue to miss the point. Then we see verses 28 through 29 that Jesus provides us with a very simple way. The simplicity of the work that God requires. Look at 28 and 29. They, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work, works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they, they ask, well, well, wait a minute, what does God require? Like, what do I have to do? There, there's got to be something. What do we have to do to please God? And Jesus says, don't, he's already said, don't, don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. He's already given them that, but they just, they want like further clarification. They're just totally missing the point here. They can't understand this. Now, it's important, important to, to note that their question, uh, it displays a level of arrogance here. It, it displays a, a level of, they believe that they have the ability even to attain a right standing with God through their works. They, they think, hey, there's got to be something that we can do because guess what? We're pretty awesome. Man, that is such the mentality of so many people today. They've done enough. They've done great things. They're not as bad as the other people you know, the bad guy is the one they see on the news, the one that's breaking the laws. They're, they're not as bad as everyone else. So surely God just is, is just dying to, to do something for them. It's the way our mind works, continually comparing ourselves to others. And these people, this crowd, they believe they have some um, intrinsic ability to meet some type of uh, challenge that God may set before them. They think like, yeah, we can do this. But Jesus gives them a clear, 
straightforward rebuttal here. He gives them a, a, a clear and straightforward, simple answer to all of their questions. And he really comforts them in a way. But they don't receive it. He says, listen, what you have to do is believe. You must have faith. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, simply put, believe in me. Have faith in me. That's it. That's the work that pleases God. That is the work that God requires. Faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, faith in Jesus is the missing passport. Uh, faith in Jesus is the missing link to this crowd's efforts. It's the only ingredient that will satisfy all that God requires. Now, as we close, I want to just define faith because there's a lot of misconceptions about what faith even is. Now, saving faith is one of the most important things that we'll ever comprehend. We must understand what is saving faith. And Lewis Burkhoff in uh, his uh, volume on systematic theology provides a very helpful definition here when he says that saving faith may be defined as a certain conviction wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit as to the truth of the gospel and a hearty reliance or trust on the promises of God in Christ. So, in other words, faith is a hearty reliance on the promises of God in Christ. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? Do we believe that the Bible is true? Do we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? See, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It is a confident trust on the promises of God to us in Christ. We believe what God says to be true. See, God desires that we trust God, that we believe in Jesus Christ to provide all that we need for this life and the next. That is what true saving faith is. The other night during our time of family worship, I was uh, reading this passage to my kids, and they just kind of looked at me, and Zion, was, he said, uh, is that it? Like, believe? And I'm like, yeah. Yes. There's simplicity there that we believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, what a joy that there isn't a, a long list of things to do to be saved. What a joy it is to know that Jesus Christ has done it all. And that if we believe in him and trust in him, we will have true saving faith. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you a couple questions as we close. What are you working for? 
What are you working for? What are you doing? Why are you working? What is your motivation in life? If you're pursuing Jesus, why? Why? Listen, if we want to know Jesus, then guess what we have to do? To, to study his word, to know more of Christ, to grow in our love for Christ. We, we must know who Christ is to ensure that we are not uh, fully motivi- motivated by the things of this world, by the materialism of this world, we must constantly align ourselves with the truths of Scripture. And I want to leave us just with a quick quote from J.C. Ryle, as I believe he sums this up well, is a good just reminder for us as we respond and leave here this morning and ask God to work in our hearts, to reveal in ourselves the ways that we have maybe prioritized things other than him. And J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we must read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasures. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with the deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a will. We must fight daily against sin, the world and the devil, like those who fight for liberty. This is laboring. This is the secret of getting on about our souls. Brothers and sisters, that is the work that we do as we cast our eyes on Christ, as we seek to know more of Christ. This is the work that will not perish. We rest in the fact that he has accomplished the work needed to satisfy our greatest need, payment for our sins. And all who believe in him, may they be truly comforted by that simple profundity. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us displayed in and through Christ. And Father, we pray that you would just help us this morning to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. Would you help us to grow in our love for him as we just reflect even more on the promise of the gospel, that all who believe will be saved. I pray, Father, for anyone in this gathering this morning that may not know you. I pray that you would work in their hearts or that you would draw them to yourself through the work of the Spirit. That you would apply just this passage, the, the grace that they need. They would see Jesus. I pray that no one would leave here today without a knowledge of Christ. Work for them. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.